Hello and welcome to the Into the Desert podcast, the podcast where we talk to inspiring people and hear their stories of motivation, courage, drive, productivity and how their environment dictated their performance. Today's guest is the Chief Product Officer of Saga Media, a new and exciting arm to the titan of the UK's over 50s market, Saga, which itself has a market cap well over £200 billion. Our guest has honed his skills with over 10 years working in product and tech on a global e-commerce system which generated 80k in its first year and well over 60 million by the time he left, with Amazon widely regarding it as the leading e-commerce technology within the publishing industry. Ross Curtis, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Very well, thank you for having me, Freddie. Good to see you. The first thing I want to jump straight into, really, for us, you know, we mentioned their product. For our listeners that don't know what product is, Mm. what is product and, and how do you fit in? So... Product, it, 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 yeah, it's something that often confuses people when you describe, I, I work in product. It's, it's one of these relatively new new age kind of roles, but actually it's been going for, for at, least two, at least two decades. Um, product is, is kind of like a, it's almost like a, it's, it's essentially like project management, um, but it's usually for a physical product or a service or a software product um these these platforms these kind an app a, a technology these sorts of things and it's the kind of the belief or the approach of evolving that that product or service through iteration so you'll you'll often things like you hear, hear these kind of buzzwords like agile agile thinking or agile methodology they go tend to go very much hand in hand in product um and it's kind of like a semi-scientific process because it's about learn using data uh, re- research understanding uh, the problem a marketplace the the business requirements all of these things uh, doing some discovery work uh, around that formulating uh, sort of some sort of definition some sort of what what it is what is the marketplace what is my customer uh, what is what are the competitors look like all of these things and and defining it carefully um, and then coming up with a roadmap and delivering against that through iterations. But it's very much, very much a belief around you don't have to build something perfect, you know, and take a long time to do it like, you know, like a waterfall project management method. It's much more like, let's build something quickly. Let's build something, uh, even a test, some sort of prototype and get it out as soon as possible and see how it does and then learn from it and then just constantly iterate over it. And it really comes back, it harps back to that time and time again. So that product approach is almost, the, one, of the, one of the first sentences uh, or sort of, I don't know, posters I saw for product was fail fast and learn. Um, I'd actually update that a bit. I called it something like fail fast to learn. I think that's slightly better. Um, but it really is that. And I find myself as a product person almost overdoing it and saying, I want something out that's, that's ugly, that's, that's bad, that's messy as soon as possible. Because that, with that, you really embrace that belief system. Because that, as soon as you do that, you know you're going to iterate on it. You know you're going to learn. You're going to see very cheaply if it was worth doing, if you're roughly heading in the right direction. And it's, it's, it's all of that. It's all of that thinking, that process, and everything that underpins it. 
It's super interesting to hear you speak about that because it feels like, you know, product is actually inherently incredibly entrepreneurial. You know, that idea of honing an idea in the market, not in your mind and actually getting those test results. So, so going back to your, um, your intro there, we're talking about the, the product that you worked on that went from, you know, 80K in its first year to, to 60 million a year by the time you left. What, what was one of the most important things on that project that you worked on? Was it the psychology of the, the user that you managed to um, unearth? Was that one of the key things or, or, or was there something else? Well, I mean, everyone's a sort of their different flavor of product. I, I think one of the, I, I've been asked this, what made it so successful? Um, a lot of things, there was just a great set of conditions for that product. Um, there was a fantastic and very talented team, which you just, it sounds trite to say it, but it's true. Um, and and we also were very lucky because the, this e-commerce system was was built into a publishing platform, and we already had a lot of a lot of big audience, a lot of users. But so my I kind of as a product manager, I kind of grew from this world of, of already having acquired a lot of users. So I was I was really like a conversion specialist, um, as was our team. Um, so we could play with that. Um, so for others who are doing startups, you really have to drill into the that kind of um, early adopter, the, these types of customers that you kind of refer to, it, that 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 ideal customer, that ideal persona, you know, um, and really play with what are their problems day to day? What real problems can we solve for? Even though we had an audience already, we were still having to think about that. So it's, it's, it's multifaceted. We, we were thinking about the problem we were solving. So in this case, for an online platform that was frankly reviewing products like the latest iPad or PlayStation or these things, we were, we were really sticking to this initial vision that we had around, um, let's make it easy for the users. There was some good competitor solutions out there that were doing this, but let's make it as easy as possible for them to find the, the best product offer, best product at the best price. So we we were we, we firmly believe that, but the data that we started to use was very much on a site that had a lot of traffic, that had um, uh, a good connection with all of the retailers that we knew we had to work with. Um, and we, we really made sure that it was front and center as well in terms of um, being easy to use, easy to understand, um, and I found myself digging a lot into tools like Google Analytics, looking at things like the price that people were typically looking at of products versus the price that they're actually spending. So you could kind of get over that hump of, you know, the difference between what users say and what users do, which is quite an old UX paradigm. Um, so, but my flavor of product was very much quantitative data. I loved looking at that. Um, I think that that and because we had that audience, we could leverage that really well. Um, I think that was that really helped us move quite quickly. Um, the, the other the other aspect, as I say, was just a lot of really good conditions, really good team, really big audience, um, really well upset in terms of the product vertical we were looking at was technologies initially. And, and there was a lot of the, the we were, it uses affiliate marketing so the affiliate marketing world had a lot of retailers already in the technology space who were paying good commissions we worked closely with amazon who we they gave us a uh, um, good bit of access to their data 
we had a good relationship with them and, and it, it allowed us to grow quite fast. So there was a lot of good conditions as well, but definitely that feedback loop of, of looking at the big data and tying it into what you do next was, was so important to us. Well, that's that answered my next question. I was going to ask you how data driven is your decision-making process, but I don't feel like I need to, I need to ask that because it's, you know, it's, it's completely ingrained, isn't it for you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I personally, I mean, my background was in managing data as well. So I, I really enjoy it. I had some, some really interesting use cases where, for example, using a tool, I think it was a tool before we used uh, Google Analytics. I can't remember. I think it was Comscore or something like that, which I think are now uh, defunct. But the, we, we would find things like we could understand that for certain widgets that people would click out on a retailer from, um, we could see that there was suddenly a huge spike in clicks on a given day. Now, if, if an old business model, we weren't charging based on a transaction, but based on how many clicks it was getting and then a cost per click model, CPC, um, you, if you suddenly had a thousands of clicks happen on a day, which is a good data to use and understand, um, but there was suddenly a spike and you were charging a retailer for that, they might suddenly say, whoa, whoa, what's going on? You suddenly charged me 40 grand and this happened to us. So I was very used to looking at this and there was a use case in, in that particular example where we, instead of invoicing them suddenly for 40, 40,000 pounds, whereas the previous month might be five or something like this, um, we had to say, hang on, what's going on here? Well, this isn't right. Um, and we looked at the data and we kept drilling and drilling and drilling down, looking at things like the country, split by country of clicks or split by um, device or split by vertical and these things. And eventually we were able to find that it all came from a little place in, I think it was in Austin, Texas, where I think the real bit had a, had a bot sort of click bombing us as it was called. And, uh, and therefore we had to take that IP address um, out of the mix so that we weren't charging. But but just I, I found that looking at these kinds of use cases was really useful for me. Um, uh, but I think for others, you know, it might not be their comfort zone and they might prefer to, to spend more time with the users. And that's equally admirable. And it doesn't come as second nature for me. But I know that a lot of, I work with a very strong head of UX who, he, who lives and breathes that. Um, but the better you integrate that, that feedback loop of data into the product, the sooner you tend to see output. Okay, so when you're when you working on this product, do you feel like, you know, you talked about incremental change there earlier. Um, mm. Did you feel like when you implemented something through the data that you'd, you'd ascertained, that it was then done and you could move forward? Or did you find yourself making decisions you know, in the past, then five years later, coming back to them mm. and saying, that is no longer what the, the market is looking for and having to make changes? Or is it something where you feel like you could move forward continuously and, and sort of leave it to run on its own? No, I, I, it's a good point. I think it's I think it's really easy for particularly mature products to kind of lose their way a bit here because you start to kind of almost drown in the amount of data you get. And... Um, if and it takes so much time if you have a certain amount of resource dedicated to analyzing the data and, and the, it's starting to become quite overwhelming it's very difficult to pick through that and continue to make really strong decisions around how you evolve the product um and it, i think it requires a certain mindset um 
but also coming back to basics in terms of I have just spent some time with some users using our product, I think can be a really good way of um, keeping yourself anchored to what's 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 best. Because if you if you start to build it and you monetize, you know, you're monetizing website based on, okay, here's the ads revenue and here's the affiliates revenue and here's here's my subscriptions and, and these sorts of things. Um, you, you can find yourself, particularly I found myself as a product person, really listening to those and the stakeholders around those quite a lot and you, you can lose your way. Whereas if you care about what's going to be the next Google algorithm update, or um, you, the way to get ahead of that, I think, is almost just to go back to users and listen to them. So it, it, for me, it's really trying to keep a, keep a broad awareness of, of all of these things, both in terms of the high level quantitative view of everything going on in your world, but also that kind of more bottom up kind of what, how are the users dealing with it? And I, I, I think there has been definitely, there's been times where we've made decisions wrong. Um, I think, you know, what, one of which that comes to mind might even be where we decided to build, and I think it's quite a typical one, is where we decided to over-engineer something. Um, and we went the long route, built something more advanced, and then we found, oh, if we had just done this more simple thing, um, we could have probably got ourselves 80, 90% of the way there for a fraction of the effort. Um, but, you know, that answering the, the, the how and the why is difficult. I find answering what why users do these things isn't always clear. So there's a difference between experiment, you know, success through experimentation versus sort of success through really understanding the why. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge, it's a hazard, and it's hard to stay on top of it. Well, that leaps back perfectly to when you started off by saying you want to put something out there that's very basic, a minimum viable product, you know, mm. learn at the, at the lowest possible cost, and then mm. iterate from there, right? That's the best way to do it. Indeed, yeah. I, I, I think, you know, if I, I could take now a lot of the learnings, which is one of my favorite books ever, was a lean startup by Eric Rise. You know, the unit, the real unit for product should be learning. And I totally agree with that. I, I, I feel like as an MVP that I could put out now for 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 affiliate marketing sort of revenue generation on a public on a publishing uh, platform would be much more lean than what we did, you know, in my prior in my prior position, uh, you know, before, you know, 10, 12 years ago. But that's just how it is. But equally, um, this market's constantly changing. I think there's always a way to to come at things as lean as possible to cut uh, to cut to produce a solution. It's just really hard to find it. And that kind of goes down to, to product being not just a process, but also a bit of a craft um, and, and just being really open minded. It's really, really interesting. And, you know, I can hear that you're passionate about product. I know you're passionate about product and you're a product person through and through. But I want to touch on, you know, now you've risen or you're in the, the C-suite level. I think there's a lot of interesting points to be made around there. So I'd love to hear, you know, you, you have a lot of pressure on you, a lot of stuff going on um, in a publicly traded company. Um, what are your tips of being productive? How do you stay productive as a chief product officer? Well, everyone's got their own approach. Um, personally, I, I like to make sure, it sounds like quite obvious, but 
one of the things that I think you can do is, is firstly try and connect up with as many people as possible. And by doing so, before you know it, you've kind of spurred off a few different ideas of things you need to do, whether it be I need to, oh, that, you know, they were talking about that, doing their budgets. I need to practice with that. Or, oh, I see, you need that thing from me. Yeah, I'll make a note about that. So reaching out and connecting with as many people as possible uh, to help you formulate that kind of to-do list, um, as well as spending as much time with your manager as you can. Um, but never underestimate the power of, of that of a, of a list. I still like to keep mine handwritten because otherwise I don't keep my up my 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 writing up to date. So I I, nice. I still I still like to to, to have that just kill. Um, so never underestimate that. The other thing is is the is is actually exercise. I think in the world we live in now, where we're more often cooped up in a in a room, uh, work, working remotely, I always try and make time for um, either an exercise in the morning, do a workout, or a walk in the day, because there's nothing quite like um, that kind of I don't know an endorphin kick that you get from from doing some exercise. It just gives allows your brain to breathe. Um, and you come back fresh. I think as well, just the exercise itself for me triggers that thought process as well. So I, I often find I'm thinking and trying to solve problems when I'm on a walk or, or up, stood up somewhere. Part of the reason why I have a standing desk uh, is because I think, you know, I, I definitely uh, believe that you know, thinking on your feet goes back to our roots, I suppose. Um, and uh, and yeah, I think as well, if you can, lastly, if you can, with this to-do to list and sort of looking after your mental well-being, if you can if you can set yourself timeframes for things, either through the help of connecting with others who depend on those, um, or, or sort of just simply saying to yourself, I'm going to get this stuff done by this time. I'm going to get these actions done by the, by the end of this week. Then that just gives you, I need that a little bit of pressure like that. And I think that, that goes a long way too. Absolutely. So that's how you stay productive. There's some really good tips in there. I think I'm, I'm very similar. If you set yourself a timeline of you know, 40 hours, you will achieve it in 40 hours. If you set it within three hours, it'll probably be done within three hours. It doesn't always work, but uh, it's really just to keep to the forefront of your mind. Um, yeah. So someone as well who's got you know, a lot of people uh, around them, reporting to them, big, ever-growing team. How do you define uh, your high-value tasks? So the ones that you know, you're speaking to with people uh, around you that then you know, that you should do, that they're of very high value, as opposed to something that should be delegated? Um, how do I define the difference between those high value tasks that I should do mm. versus those that should be delegated for others to do? Yeah. Well, the distinction, I think, for me is, is it's not always super clear. I think those ones that um sometimes I I, I I I might regard a task as very high value um but because it's high value I might decide to, to delegate it because I don't think it necessarily I'm the best person for the job um but in terms of kind of general prioritization I do I do have a couple of tools in the back of my mind um think things like um value effort matrix that that's a really great one that's one i use more generally for, for even for features and ticketing and things like this 
Um, but, you know, if if there's a, something that's slightly more um, around managing stakeholders, um, then these will typically stay with me. But if they're, if they're more around, uh, I guess, delivery, then I can afford to set some context on those and, and get those delegated. Um, but again, I like to keep things quite organic. I'm, I'm not necessarily rigid in my approach. I, I like to just have conversations with my team. I like to have quite regular, um, at least twice a week meetings with my team. And with, without necessarily having too much structure, we always like to start the meeting with, this is what I've been working on, this is what I'm doing next. But then kind of leave it open to, oh, I need to talk to you about this, I need your help on this. And it very quickly, if I'm talking about the stuff that's on my to-do list, I might find out that actually, you're right, that's really high profile, and, and I, but I could do with your help on that. And that it might organically end up being delegated. Uh, I don't think there's any super clear-cut way um, between something being high value and therefore it must stay with me. I think it really just depends on on what it is and who's going to best solve solve the problem. You know what mm. I mean? I think that's actually really powerful. I made a note to come back to there because I think that relates to another question later on, which is actually you know very apt. Um, I want to ask you, you know, these two questions sort of link. So we've gone through productivity, delegation, your high value tasks. Um, you're obviously in a position where there's a lot, you know, there's a lot riding on. It's a publicly traded company. It's a big company. Um, you know, lots and lots of customers, lots of users, lots of shareholders. How do you, what are your tips for handling pressure? So pressure is something that we all feel, but you know, what are your tips and how do you cope with pressure? Hmm. Well, um, yeah, the, the, there's some, there's some things that I kind of touched on earlier with that. And I remember when I've really had a lot of pressure on me, I really needed to make sure I got out an exercise. So that, that has to come first and foremost, you, you'll be surprised. Maybe you, you weren't ready, but I, I think I was. I was surprised to what extent I, the pressure really mounts up in my head if I hadn't gone and give myself a break and give myself some exercise, mm. time, and space. It's very easy to fall into that trap of I must sit down. I must just get this all done. I just must get this all done. And I think without really thinking about it too much, you find yourself sort of working more, much more inefficiently and, and perhaps a little bit more startled or. or and, and just and just more yeah just more inefficient in the way that you work because you just haven't given yourself that time to think clearly and step back get some endorphins in you and do mm. what's right for your brain um i i found uh obviously that to be very important the the other thing is um it just makes me think of an old expression that my my dad instilled in me from a young age which was the organization is the key to success I think if you can try and, and get on on top of any major deadlines, which are usually where the cause of pressure comes from, um, a certain amount of work within a certain time frame is usually what for me is the source of pressure. So, with that in mind, is is if you can if you can get ahead of those um, as soon as possible, usually by talking it through, thinking it through, and breaking it down. And breaking it down into into kind of key milestones or actions it doesn't even have to be as, as, as sort of i don't know buzzwordy as milestones it you just it's just about taking the whole piece of work and breaking it down um and if you can share that and talk that through with someone else I find that really helpful if you and even better if you they, you can then get some of your team to help split that up and share the load of it that's amazing so mm. talk it through 
get some exercise, talk through all of the, the big problems to solve, try and break it down, chunk it up, see if you can delegate it out. Mm. Really interesting. And it's, and it's like you've got a, a really good plan for it as well, which I think is you know one of the first steps, isn't it, to just to, uh, having a plan or a strategy to cope with pressure. Um, and I wanted to touch on burnout as well. Burnout is something that's been massive in 2022. Uh, and there's a forecast that 2023 will be the biggest year for burnout of managers um, mm. ever, you know, in history so far. So, you know, is there anything else that you do or to help your the managers under you avoid burnout? Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's really key. Uh, I, I one of the one of the things I, I just keep saying to my team is is just please, please tell me what your latest problems are so if every week we meet i'll just say what's your biggest worry what's your biggest concern so if if, as long as they're not bottling anything up and they're sharing those i think that's the first step towards just opening the sluice to to that because when the pressure really builds up and people are so stressed there's something really wrong so if we can keep that those communication channel quite open in terms of what's your biggest concerns what's your biggest problems um share those and then we can go back to that other point i said earlier which is just Let's try and talk it through, break those problems down, see if we can delegate them out, share the pressure. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and sometimes people just just need a break, you know. And some and some people um, aren't very good at recognizing that. I mean, I know in the past I wasn't brilliant at seeing it myself. I, I even had my my wife uh, sort of tell me, "You need to go. You need to take a break. You need to you need to go for a walk or what have you." So you've got those people around you that you can kind of um confide in uh that helps a lot um and yeah talk about it get ahead of it with exercise expose expose the problems share the problems you know for for me it's really about preventing it getting to that stage um and if someone is at that stage then that you're gonna have you really need to make sure they've got some time away because it's just not worth it i would the, the the Talent is is a really difficult resource to get hold of, especially in this day and age where everyone is um, finding jobs further afield that can do more remote working. The value of good good quality talent is so high. So if if they're being burnt out and lost, it's such it's just such a negative detrimental impact. Um, and uh, I, I'd highly recommend that you just have a manager you can open up to, a colleague you can open up to. Um, and get the exercise and all these things, all these good, healthy things. Okay, we briefly got cut off there, but let's move on to the next question anyway, which is how do you maintain or manage innovation? You know, in a, in a product role, um, you're coming to work and you're being asked to innovate every day, make changes. You already mentioned incremental change. How do you cope with that? What are your strategies around that, you and your team? Sure. I mean, so... I guess there's, there's innovation at, for me at least two levels. So you're you're innovating at a at, within a, a very much a defined product or feature set, and that kind of goes hand in hand with the agile methodology. You're you're constantly, you've hopefully you've got some some good uh, data inputs in terms of, you know, I'm monitoring in in the web world, which is which is my background. I'm monitoring bounce rate, or I'm monitoring you know, scroll depth, or I'm monitoring click-through rate here, or conversion rate there, and I'm splitting it by things, and I'm checking all of these reports, and 
and I find anomalies and I oh there's a problem the conversion rates dropped off on a particular page particular vertical on a particular device and we need to fix that so if you like in a way that's that's kind of like a form of innovation but some but mostly that's I guess that's regarded as as kind of maintenance or like you know but what it what can happen is that can then result if you're looking at the, if you're monitoring the right data points and things before you know it, you find a little opportunity um so if you there's little opportunities and and uh, will we'll jump out at you there but then that's what i call sort of like really deep inside the product um but you you might step back and say but generally there's a there's a there's a larger operation and it and now to kind of sound a little bit i don't know product buzzwordy there's this kind of double diamond process so if you've got the kind of the, the discovery process for the product and you're thinking much more broadly around um these this is our users problems and you go back to that point and you really think about does my platform does my app does my website solve for those problems or if I ask them more around this, what, how do you do that? Or you see something newer competitors doing, how does they solve for those problems? You can kind of come out a different way and say, you know what, a website solution isn't right. You know, we need a Chrome extension or we need a we need an app. And, and so if you're thinking more broadly about the user experience and the, and the user's problems, and you, and you make time to measure for those or think about those on a, on a semi-regular regular basis, then that should be your your trigger point for innovation. So uh, I like it in our teams, we're like at least every quarter we, we should be stepping back and re rebuilding our entire roadmap or or and thinking about that kind of base level of, of the user experience. What's what problem? What's the vision for the product? What are and even before this, what what's the problem for our users, our, our you know, our personas? What what problems are they experiencing now? Mm -hmm. You know, and and if you're really in touch with that, then that's a trigger point for a whole new product. And it's happened to us before, you know, in my prior job where we were thinking about, okay, they've got a problem with not just on our site, but on, on other websites. So maybe we could solve that with the same technology because that means something lean, um, but we could solve for a completely different use case. And, and I think if you just make time to be regular in exploring and discovering um, you can innovate constantly off the back of that. So it's, it's really just about discipline and, and just learning all the time. Amazing. And, and do you set up your week in a way to do that? So you're talking about constantly you know, discovering and, and finding out new ways of doing things. Do you set your week up around that? Do you find that you are better or more innovative in the morning? Do you have different types of meeting, depending on what yeah. you want to achieve from them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, we, we have... Uh, a kind of a, a regular, you know, like sprint planning process in our week to week anyway, which is within a given product, you know, so for the publishing world, you have your ad product and you have your, your e-com or affiliates products and you have your um, CMS products. And we have regular sprint planning weekly meetings, which are very much around generating hypotheses and, and, um, and, and generating experiments that might solve for these hypotheses against a more broad roadmap. And and in terms of, uh, I haven't thought too much about biology of when is the best time for our team to to, to think this way, but it's but it's it's an interesting point. I think you know some people say they're best in the morning, um, but generally speaking, we have those kind of cadences built in a weekly 
opportunity to for our uh, UX person or our tech person to bring the latest set of hypotheses into their meeting or the latest set of experiments to, to, to unlock some of these hypotheses. And then we try and push through that innovation at that level as quick as possible. So let's try and solve for that hypothesis, hypothesis validate that, that, you know, that by showing this many people have clicked this today, you will increase click through rate by 10%, you know, and what have you. Or, um, uh, but at the, at the more kind of longer meet, sort of at the longer time frame could be quarterly, we are trying to reset the whole roadmap. And I think that gives us a chance to innovate more broadly. And that's again, a quarterly meeting. Um, it, we should also talk about the fact that it's, innovation doesn't just happen on the product, you know, because we, so we like to do retrospectives, which is another very productive thing to do where you kind of say the way that we do things might not be right. So maybe we need to innovate how we do stuff. And it, it just so if you can do a retrospective and give the, the, everyone a chance to sort of feedback and say, oh, I don't like the way that we do this. We do we spend too much time doing X and we need to spend a little more time thinking about why or, you know, so it's also about innovating on your, the process itself. But as, as long as you make time for these kinds of conversations, then I think you then are that is the seed that those are the seeds for, for innovation. So that's really interesting. So, so product is obviously the forefront of what you're trying to do, but what you're actually saying is that the processes around that also need to be looked at all the time to innovate, yeah. to make sure that everything is, is incrementally improving all the time. Indeed. Okay, perfect. I, I want to touch on what you said a little while ago. So you said you delegate to the best person in the team, which I think is actually a very, uh, a very aware thing to do. You know, you're, you're hiring people that you're happy to admit are better than you at certain things. Mm, yeah, totally. That's such a, such a good way of, of thinking. So I want to ask you, what do you look for in a good hire? Now, as your team evolves and grows, what, what are you looking for to, when you bring someone in? Yeah, well, personally, I'm, I'm looking for, I'm looking for uh, someone that's got a lot of enthusiasm um, and it's got a um, passion. Because, you know, aside from their sort of technical skills, experience and competencies for the role, I'm a big believer that if someone's got the right passion and the right motive, you know, the right enthusiasm and motivation, then all of the rest can follow. So I would rather hire someone that didn't have the skills or experience for a given role um, or had less of it, depending on the level. Um, but showed me that they were really interested or that they were really passionate about it because you can't really learn. It's more difficult to learn that. You can't really learn that. Um, whereas you can, you can learn how to, how to you know, build a, in a certain way or the processes and the methodologies around it. So, yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan of someone to such an extent, you know, that, that, for me in the past, it's almost been my number one factor is how enthusiastic are they? How much do I believe that they're going to be open-minded? Um, I've, I've hired people in the past that who were technically brilliant, expert experience, brilliant, but they just didn't care. Um, and that's a big problem. You know, you, you're not, you, it, it's, it's not the right way to go. And, uh, and I've learned from that. Okay. And, and how, what are your thoughts on, on culture? So it's, it's widely, well, a lot of people believe that culture or corporate culture, whatever size company it is, attracts talent. 
And, and so how do you feel about that? So do you think that, you know, the, the culture of a company or even of a team has an impact on the talent you can then attract and also, um, you know, forced to leave? So if the culture was to change, people would then leave. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've worked um, at companies where the culture has been sometimes great and then sometimes not so great. Um, it's, it's been one of my key factors for me deciding on, on when I faces that I considered joining. Um, so much so that I said, I don't want to really interview yet until I've come in and seen the office and the people. I think it's very important, unless you're, you know, you're, you know, you're not planning to integrate with the company for long, which is never a good way to start. I don't, I don't think, I think it's so important. Um, there's a lot to, to be said about the culture, the people, I suppose, which really is underpins the culture and the, all of their interactions. So, um, I've, I've to talk more negatively for a moment. I have experienced. Uh, also experienced for, for a period of time where the culture has not been strong and it has been quite um, toxic and and uh, particularly around sort of workload and these sorts of things um, and I think in a way I kind of wore it a bit like a badge of honor you know like well I can I can I can survive this I'm okay I'm doing okay I, I but I think that might be also because of I, my Kind of the conditions i was quite lucky i had a really good team to work with if you if you're not work if you're finding it like for example a, a manager is really uh making a terrible time for you that's the worst that can that can for me at least that was that was the worst part of the worst experience i had and without knowing it you can suddenly find yourself in a very dark place mm. um and uh my heart always goes out to people who are in those situations. It's very difficult to be the person that says, I'm not going to put up with this. I'm going to make it, I'm going to let people know. Mm. Um, because if you're depending on that salary for your, your, you know, the well-being of your family and what have you, um, then you might not feel like you can be this, um, you know, can be the one that raises the head up above the parapet and puts the worlds to rights because it might end up, you know, in a situation that where you don't have much choice but to, to leave or mm. you know, resign or whatever. So um, it's it's really important. It's just really hard to explain those conditions that make culture bad or or or, or to define it clearly when you're in that situation. Um, and it's I also just believe it's it's one of the most important things for having a meaningful long-term job somewhere. And it, and it just shapes your whole attitude towards your job and your role. Um, last thing I'll say on that is I remember there was a time when I was, we were working really well, um, a group of us in one of my old roles. And I even referred to it as a golden time, a golden era. And um, I had a new manager and they said, what motivates you? What, what's, what, what is it? You know, are you, because, think she knew we didn't get remunerated particularly well and and i and i was like i, I, was, I was confused by the question if i'm honest i was like what do you mean what do you mean but what what actually did re really motivate me and, and the team i was with was a sense of winning so there was like a, a sports like element to the experience you know it was we had a taste for winning we had a taste for for do for working in a certain way for being quite 
judicious in the way that we worked for executing effectively and then seeing results. And and that is the kind of culture that I really want to to build and bring into our department. And um and that's really important. I think it's a great answer. I think it's so true. It resonates massively with me that you know, culture has a massive impact on uh, how you work, how you feel, but actually mm. how long you want to stay somewhere. I mm. want to jump into some uh, some quick questions, Ross. Um, sure. First one being a book recommendation from you. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm terrible at reading. I'm better at listening. I've been listening to. Um, I loved. I for people that wanted to first get into product, you just can't get wrong. Can't go wrong with Eric Rice. Um, Lean Startup book, um, but I've recently been listening to I'm not slightly more in depth, slightly more challenging, but um, also it's very inspiring read um, by uh, Dan Olson, which is the Lean Product Playbook, and that's that really if you're if you're already a product manager and you're kind of interested in some new techniques, I'd recommend that one. Um, mm. It's got some really interesting approaches to um, kind of creating a matrix around features and how you can understand the competitive landscape and kind of score them um so that there's just lots of really good juicy stuff in there um I, i'd recommend that one perfect um when do you think it's time for a change this is to do with sort of you know uh you know time in your life or, or just a job or something you're doing when do you think it's now time for a change um I, as someone that's stuck with a with a company for a very long time, that's and then and only recently moved on. Um, I feel like maybe I can give some insight on that because it's quite quite hard. Um, I I I think when you're in those situations like we talked about earlier, where the culture is so pernicious that you're very unhappy, or that your partner or your life partner are telling you you're not well, you're not right, that's that's got to be a, a strong indicator. Um, if you just feel like you don't care, you know, because <laughs> like it is possible to have a job that you like, you walk into work in the morning and you feel like, oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to today. And I, so if you're not doing that, if you feel like you're, you're somewhere and you're just going through the motions, then I'd say it's time for a change. Um, so that's another sort of more subtle one. Um, for me, it, my, where I moved on from was a company I loved and people, a lot of people I love, but I got to a stage where I wasn't really learning anymore as well. So, it, I mean, I'm sure that could have happened eventually, but I kind of felt like I had a chance to step back um, and and look at bigger and new opportunities. And uh, and that was a great, a great choice. Looking back, I think I made a good choice in that one. So learning more, you know, the vibe not being right or um, or just, where you, you're a bit, a bit vacant. These are, these are several examples of when I think it's time to move on. Well, that's a great link on to my next quick question, which was how often do you learn or feel like you should learn something new? So it sounds like it's a big thing to you. Yeah, I honestly, you should be learning all the time, right? I mean, it, it, and that's what makes life great. You know, if you're not learning, it's not interesting, really. Um, do I, am I always learning? No, and I should be. And I, I try and challenge myself. You know, recently I said, oh, I need, I need to move on. I need to finish my lean product paper and, and learn because I've been learning some great things in it already. Um, I need to 
um, make sure that I have dashboards set up for the latest platform work I'm doing at Sargo. And all of these, all of these different things, um, I, it's, it's, it's so important, learning. And it, as I said earlier, it's, it's the real unit for, of, of success for, for product. Mm-hmm. And only out of the learning, you're really answering the why, you know, of, of why that feature didn't work. Um, you can experiment your way to success, but if you don't learn why that worked or why that didn't work, then you could find yourself experimenting your way to failure. So mm-hmm. uh, all costing a lot of money and time and money in the process. So it really is the difference between reliable success. Absolutely. Um, the next one I've got for you is how do you feel that your environment dictates or impacts your performance to work? And, and you know, how often do you change the environment or go to different locations to impact and improve that? Yeah, it's not something I've given enough thought to, but I do know that there have been some studies around how the environment can vastly improve people's work. But uh, their output. Um, I, I cannot quote that example, but I know, for example, that that when a, a particular study was done in a particular office, I think it was done in somewhere in Scandinavia, more might play more to your heart, Freddie, where they um, at a certain time of day, all the desks were lifted up on winches, on ropes, and things like this, and it's and it. I think it caused people to do stand up working. But I think it also said time to finish. So you, you know, don't burn yourself out like a non-burnout technique. Um, and I love that. I thought that was genius. I've always, as I said to you before, I'm a big fan of of walk, walking and stand-up working and all is really good for your mental health and, and getting yourself thinking in a fresh way. In terms of like changing your environment completely, I've <clears throat> I'm trying to do that a bit. Um, it's something that I used to do a lot with my team is what I call walk and talk meetings, get out and you can, no reason why if you're doing a certain meeting where you don't need to be record, sharing screens or working, doing workshops together, but you're talking more on a personal level, then you can, you can do it as a walk and talk. So getting out into the fresh air and doing a walk and talk, why not? That's good for both of your health. And, and lastly, um, in the world of remote working, it's, prob- it's still valuable to meet up and work with your colleagues face-to-face. It doesn't have to be, you know, Regular, it doesn't have to be every day, obviously, because that would defeat the point. It, it could once a week's great. Once a month, if you can afford it, that's great too. But even just, you know, even even in a world where we're all remote, working re- remotely at distance, a, a digital environment could be great as well. Where I'm deciding we're not going to meet, we're going to meet up still on a video call, but we're going to be in a different kind of environment emotionally. We're going to be having a beer, at, you know, because it's the end of the day now and it's time to talk to you as a human being, or um, I'm going to, I guess, take take time to kind of go and have a, have a kind of a workshop or a, a team day out, and we're going to do that instead. I'm a big believer in all of that stuff. Um, it builds into that mm. kind of attitude around that environment being right, that culture being right. So environment and culture, I think, can go quite hand in hand. And I, I imagine you could talk to that a lot more than me. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's awesome to hear you speak like that because you touched on it there, but it, it makes someone a human doesn't it and in, yeah. in a, especially in the product world you know a lot of innovation but also a lot of pressure i think that human 
um, that human element is ele elephant. I mean, element uh, is incredibly important, and it, and it helps in so many ways. Um, last couple of questions for you, Ross. I really want to really want to know. I've asked everyone this one. Um, if you had a full free day, how would you spend it? <clears throat> yeah, I'd, I'd love to think on that more because that that's a nice. <laughs> one. I, I I think um, I think that if I had a day that was completely completely free in terms of I didn't even have to there was you know no work and and I didn't even have to um, look after the kids too much then it might be doing one of my old pastimes which is actually carrying out a bit of music production I used to play a bit of guitar I used to do a bit of singing I used to have my own video audio production company and I used to really enjoy uh, composition and uh, working in a, a studio my boutique studio I used to have I probably spend time setting up the studio, getting into one of my old mixes, and uh, and doing a bit of music production. Um, and that's just something I don't make time for anymore. And probably probably a more interesting answer than you know going on a walk with the family. As, as good as that is, <laughs> that's a great answer. And my last one for you is: uh, What should someone looking to get into product be doing or learning? What's the best tip you can give someone looking to get into a product role? Yeah, well, I think. I think um i think obviously you know you, you can read the books and things and and you can learn that way but um personally a lot of what you might read doesn't really bed in until you've started doing it so only when you've got in slightly involved in a product in some way then does that stuff that you read really stick and make sense so if you're in a junior role it could be that you know you're you're, you're doing administrative work or you're doing um i don't know some analysis work or you're even just doing some project a little bit of project management work and you're, you're thinking of making a move into product well all you need to do is try and create some sort some sort of feedback loop in your work so if that's if that and, and if it and if it if, if it has some sort of valuable output to the business then you'll very quickly find a way in so if if for example you're helping on a project and you've decided that this project, this project you've just helped your, your team deliver, um, it's fine, but it could be better. And it's out. It might be it's on, out the door. It's on its way out the door. And you're like, well, I've had. I'm just going to capture some feedback from this person here because they're not quite happy with how they use the system. That's great. That's a bit of feedback. I'm now going to turn it into something and clean it up and cleanse it and clarify it. It could be I'm going to create an experiment or I'm going to give it as a ticket to an engineer or something and they're going to deliver it. And it's really quick lean. Then you might you're kind of creating a feedback loop there. And then if, if you get an output from that um, and you can share, if you document that and share that to, to your colleagues, your higher ups, then you kind of carried out a little bit of product work there. And if it gets recognized because you've documented it well um, and you've shown the value in it then before you know it, you're going to create yourself sort of a bit of a niche in, in, in terms of adding value. And that is really what that, that kind of product cycle is. Well, Ross, thank you so much for coming on. It's been amazing to have uh, all your insight and experience. Um, so thank you so much and uh, all the best for, for 2023. Freddie, thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye.